Folks, if I can have your attention, good morning and welcome. We've got a guest here. I just met her, Peyton Poole. She uh, is a graduate of Alma Heights High School and a graduate of UT, and she is coming on board with a Christian ministry and wants to just say a few words to you all, uh, and then she's going to go down and talk with Treve Sasser's class. She's trying to raise support for her ministry. So if you're interested, she's put her information up there on the board if you're interested in supporting her in any way. So Peyton, I'm going to, here, just hold that. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Like I said, my name is Peyton, and it is such a privilege and honor to get to speak with you just for a few minutes today. But like you said, I grew up in Alma Heights, um, just around the corner, and I thought I was a Christian because I went to church every so often and knew some things about God. I would go to summer camps, but the reality was I never really knew God personally. Um, and so I went to UT and kind of lived the college experience, um, and I wanted to just be perfect in all these areas of my life and my grades and my reputation and how people um, would just approve of me um, and what I could prove to others. And so this really just ultimately left me feeling empty um, and unfulfilled. But luckily, God graciously um, put someone in my life who is actually my big sister in my sorority at UT, and she shared the gospel with me um, within the first couple of weeks of coming to college. Um, and she asked me how certain I was I was going to heaven. And I remember this conversation, and I remember saying 80%, um, because I felt like I couldn't be completely sure. Um, and so after that, she explained the gospel um, to me that Jesus came to die on the cross um, to pay for my sins, and that I could be 100% sure that I could go to heaven um, and spend eternity with him. And so this um, just wonderful person in my life, she discipled me. She helped me grow in my faith. Um, and I got really involved in this ministry, student mobilization at UT. Um, and so I graduated with my degree in nursing, but I've decided to work for STUMO for a couple of years um, because I just think it's so important to help um, these students during these transformative years of their lives know the reality of the gospel and the hope and truth that they so pro profoundly need. Um, and so right now I am support raising my salary. And so I have tons to say about this ministry and tons of stories um, of just people who have come to faith, who have been saved during college like I was. Um, and we hope to just meet more and more students um, in this position where we can help them um, grow in their faith. And so if you're interested at all, I would love to meet with you and just have 30 minutes of your time or take you out to get coffee or anything um, to just share with you more about what I'll be doing, what my specific role will look like, um, and also how you could partner with me in this ministry through prayer and financial support. And so I left my number on the board. Um, and like I said, I would just be so honored and love to get to talk to you all more about um, what this will look like and what I'll be doing. Um, but yeah, I'm just so excited and passionate about this ministry. Um, and just I'm so excited to see what God has in store for the lives of many um, on UT's campus. And so, yeah, I'm so thankful that I got to share with you guys. Um, and so, yeah, if you are interested at all or just encouraged about what I will be doing and want to hear more, I'd love to connect with you. Um, my deadline is August 6th, and so I'm kind of in the crunch time now. We have a few weeks until school starts, and I'm not allowed to go on campus until I reach 100%. And so I'm hoping I'm about a little over halfway there, and so hoping to reach 100% by August 6th. So if you have time at all um, before then, I'd love to meet and connect with you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Peyton. Yes. Why don't, why don't we pray for Peyton right now that uh, her goal will be met and that she'll have a great ministry there. Lord God, thank you for Peyton. Thank you for her sorority sister who led her to Christ. 
And I thank you for placing this call of ministry on her heart, and I pray that uh, by August 6th, she will top her goal. Uh, move the hearts, uh, even now be softening people's hearts here, elsewhere, down in Treb's class, that uh, all of that uh, funding would come in so that she can hit the ground running uh, when the semester begins uh, for this next school year. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank okay, you so thank you. Thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. Two things that Peyton said are very important. Number one, you heard her talk about her sorority sister asked her, if you died, would you be sure you spent eternity? That is the most important question that any of us can ask ourselves. Um, back early in my ministry, um, I'm, a, I'm a John Calvin fan, and I've read just about everything he's written and he gets bad press as some kind of cerebral, uh, intellectual, and oftentimes uh, dour. Kind. He was very, uh, he wrote hymns, poetry, uh, had a great sense of humor. He pastored St. Peter's Cathedral in Geneva. And the focus of his ministry uh, and was that every one of his parishioners would have the assurance of their salvation. You know, people died a lot earlier back then, there were all kinds of diseases and everything, so people were dropping like flies all the time. So Calvin was trying to always prepare people, uh, but that, even though we've cured a lot of diseases and our lifespan is much longer, that's still the question. And so I've made the focus of my ministry over the years. I want everybody to be assured of their salvation. If you're here today and you're only 98% sure, I'll just throw one verse out and if you can hang on to this, um, that should solve the problem. Uh, you know, Scripture is really, either is really what it says it is or it's not. And if it is, then you've got to take it seriously. And uh, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you might be saved, right? No, no. You've got a good shot at being saved, right? No, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, I have to throw out a caveat here. A lot of people hear that and they go, okay, if I believe all the right things, I'm in. That's not what he's saying. Greek word for belief is more than intellectual assent. Uh, the best way I can get that across to you is to tell you a true story about a guy named uh, Charles Blondine, who was, uh, he was kind of the uh, evil Knievel of his day at the late 19th century. He was the world's foremost tight wire walker. And he came to the US and he said, I'm gonna string, stretch a tight wire across Niagara Falls from the American to Canadian side and I'm gonna walk across it. Well, if you know anything about Niagara Falls, billions of gallons of water are going over that thing every second, creating tremendous updrafts and so that you can't just string a tight wire across there. It has to be anchored. So they had these guy wires uh, anchoring that thing, and it took them weeks to get it so it wouldn't move. And uh, so Blondine, the day comes to do it, and he starts, and thousands of people show up on each side 
to watch this feat. No one's ever done it before. So he has his pole, and he walks from the American side to the Canadian side, and he makes it. The place goes wild, and flash bulbs are popping and everything. And then he turns around, and he walks back to the American side. Now, he had a kind of a podium set up on the American side to give kind of a press conference afterwards. And uh, everybody's going crazy, and they're shouting, uh, you know, hooray, and you're great. And he, he starts off by saying, who is the greatest tight wire walker in the world? And they start chanting, Blondine, Blondine, Blondine. And then he says, I'm the greatest? Okay. Do you believe I could go across that wire again, this time with somebody on my shoulders? Yes, you're the greatest. You're the greatest. May I have a volunteer? Do <laughs> you see where this is going? Intellectually, everybody's saying, yeah, you're great. You can do it. He turns to his manager and says, do you believe I can do that? Yeah. He says, then get up on my shoulders. I guess the guy was hard up for work or something. Because he gets on Blondine's shoulders. And they start heading across to the Canadian side. They get out about to the mid midway, and boom, one of those guy wires pops loose. And the wire begins to go like this. Blondine says to his manager, don't panic. And don't go with your gut. Do whatever I say. If you don't do what I say, we're both going to die. So if the wire sways to the right and your gut's telling you, lean left, bounce it, but you feel me leaning right, lean with me, or we're going to die. You've got to become one with me if we're going to live. Guess what? They make it to the Canadian side. You see the difference between intellectual assent and total all-in commitment? Being, being assured of your salvation, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, is getting up on his shoulders. Theologically, we call that union with Christ, that you have an actual personal relationship with the living Lord. Let me throw one more verse out to disabuse you of the idea of intellectual assent saving you. In James 2.19, uh, James says uh, that even the demons believe. Have you ever thought about that? The demons are the most theologically orthodox beings in the universe. They don't sit around and argue, was Jesus born of a virgin or not? Was he bodily raised from the dead? They don't argue about it. They know, they've seen it. They know. So what's the difference between a demon and me? Sometimes, not much. But um, the demon has not surrendered, become one with Christ. In fact, he's warring against Christ. So don't think that intellectual assent, because I believe every phrase of the Apostles' Creed, that's your ticket. No. Uh, you, you and I only have assurance of our salvation by being one with Christ, all in for Christ. And she, uh, Peyton also said something about she was discipled by her roommate. That's the big gap in not just the American church, but the world church today is discipling. Um, what am I talking about? You know, um, the church is declining in the West, but if you go everywhere else in the world, I've been on every continent except one, Antarctica, I've never been there. And everywhere I go, the church is booming. 
And I get excited, and then I dig deeper, and I find out, yeah, there's a lot of converts. If this is an average day, 10,000 people will become Christians in Latin America. 10,000 more in Africa. 10,000 more just in the country of China. Today, every day, that's happening. But it's one thing to come to Christ, uh, but it's another thing to be disciple. Let me, you know, famous last words, you know, last words are interesting things. I, I wrote down a few of them here of some famous people. Stonewall Jackson's last words, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's last words, standing on the gallows with a noose around his neck. This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Um, I must go in, the fog is rising. Those were Emily Dickinson's last words. It is very beautiful over there. That was Thomas Edison's last word. Either the wallpaper goes or I do. That was Oscar Wilde's last word. <laughs> last words can be important. What were Jesus' last words before he ascended? Anybody know? Today you'll be with me in paradise. No, that was on the cross. Before he ascended. Actually, his last words on the cross were, it is finished. Which, again, should disabuse you and me of any idea that, oh, my good deeds outweigh my bad. No, Christ, the only deeds that can save you and me are Christ's deeds, and he did it all. We contribute nothing to our salvation except our sin. That's the only thing we bring to it. But one with Christ, we get his robe of righteousness around us, and that's what gives us the assurance of salvation. If you're thinking your goodness or your ability at doing church stuff is going to, you're not going to have assurance of your salvation. When do you know if you're good enough or churchy enough or spiritual enough? You can't. You don't have to. Jesus did it all. It is finished. What were Jesus' last words before he ascended? Anybody remember? I hate to say a fellow pastor's wife is wrong here, but that's not. <laughs> Actually, that was an angel saying that to, after he left. But the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make not converts, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then here's the part we hardly ever look at and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Disciple literally means learner. And if you're, if, you know, it's not, I accepted Christ, I'm in, now I go to live my life. No, it means you begin a journey of learning uh, more about Christ. I, I believe Christ is so inexhaustible that in eternity we will always be learning something new about him every day. Ad infinitum. And so being discipled is learning about who Christ is, um, what he's done for you, what he's expecting of you. Um, he says, teach them everything I commanded you. What did he 
it's kind of a circular thing. Well, go and make disciples. So if you're a disciple, you also have to be a disciple maker where you're doing what that, what Peyton's sorority sister did to her. You're finding somebody, bringing them to Christ, and then helping them grow in their Christian life. And you never get off the discipling train like, oh, I've been doing this for 40 years, so now I'm in. I'm there. No, it's a, we're going to learn for eternity. We're going to be discipled for eternity. All that's to say, two weeks from today, we, this class, we're going to focus in on how to be a disciple, what does it mean, um, what are the ramifications of that, how we can be disciple-making, uh, disciple-makers, the goal of making this more of an intentional disciple-making church. Um, when I went to Highland Park Prez, they had a mission statement that I memorized before I got there. But every group I met with, I said, what's the mission statement of this church? Not one person. Well, that's Jesus in there. I went to the steering committee. They're the folks who are supposed to be steering the ship. They didn't know what it was. My first session meeting, I asked them. They didn't know. I said, whoa, we have no idea what we're doing or where we're going. So we got a task force put together to hammer out a mission statement for the church. While they're doing that, I go to a conference at First Pres Orlando. Um, it was one of those Save the Peace USA conferences. And uh, the keynote speaker was a guy named Leonard Sweet. He's a Christian futurist and brilliant guy. We had him come to Highland Park one time and brilliant guy. Anyway, uh, he's given a talk one day and he said, how many of you here today have just hammered out a mission statement or are working on one. <laughs> I raised my hand, and so did most everybody in the place. And then I'll never forget, he leaned over the pulpit and said, why? Why are you doing that? Jesus gave the mission statement for the church. Matthew 28. Hit me between the eyes. I went back and dismantled our committee, and Highland Park's mission statement was making disciples of Jesus Christ. Simple as that. You could pull anybody out of the pew. What's the mission of this church? Making disciples of Jesus Christ. That ought to be the mission statement of every church. Every church. Um, so we're going to learn, and Chris has written a book called The Crisis of Discipleship, uh, reviewing the art of relational disciple-making. And it takes a lot from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, somebody we've been looking at a lot. And... Um, Chris and myself and Paul and Tom Benke is going to be our fourth teammate teaching, and we'll be doing that two weeks from today. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at whatever psalm is being preached on in worship, and Tom's going to lead us next Sunday. Today, we're looking at Psalm 9. That's the sermon text at all the services here. And I thought we'd go about looking at this psalm uh, in a different way than just going through it, and here's what I think it means. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a card over there with Bibles on there. If you have an iPhone, you can pull Psalm 9 up on your iPhone. Um, hopefully you have your own Bible with you, but there's Bibles on that shelf. And what I'd like us to do is look at this psalm from the perspective of a preacher, um, one of the bad things about being a retired pastor 
is I can't sit in worship and listen to a sermon because I'm always looking at the text and going, how would I handle this text? And um, I'm thinking, oh, I do this. Oh, that's the focal point. And meanwhile, the sermon's going on. I'm kind of half listening and I'm half preaching. Why did he make that move? I would have never gone there. Um, or, wow, I didn't see that. So I thought we'd take a look at this psalm from the perspective of a pastor or preacher who approaches this psalm cold, which is what every pastor ought to be doing. Uh, my professor of homiletics and Union Seminary, that's preaching, fancy word for preaching. Welford Hobby used to always say, come as cold as you can to the text. Push aside all your cultural and potty training and all that stuff and try to come to the text not with, I've got a bunch of ideas I think the congregation needs to hear, and I'll try to bend this text to support them. No, he said, that's not faithful preaching. Let the text take you where it wants to go. Now, the interesting thing is, the Holy Spirit seems to like to let the text take people in different directions. I guarantee you, has anybody been to worship today here yet? Anybody? Okay, so everybody's going to go either to Westminster Hall or the sanctuary, and you'll hear Mitchell preach in the sanctuary. Is it Becky in uh, Westminster? And you're going to have already looked at this, and why? you'll be amazed. You'll be thinking, I wonder where they're going to go. How did they get there? Um, wow, that's cool. And you might even disagree with something they say. How come they're not bringing out this part of the text? So I, I, I can't really listen to sermons very well anymore because I'm analyzing it and preaching my own. But uh, if you look at this psalm, um, it's an interesting thing. I did some research on this, not as much as I would do if I was preaching it. By the way, I, I, Timothy, in one of his letters, Paul, in one of his letters to Timothy, talks about rightly dividing the word, and, and he's really talking, encouraging Timothy to be a good preacher. And so in Dallas, I, I one time stopped in the middle of my sermon and said, I bet you wonder, some of you wonder, how in the world do I get in this pulpit and, and preach what I do, and how did I get there? And a lot of people think a pastor sits down on Saturday night and thinks, what do they need to hear tomorrow? Unfortunately, there are pastors that do that. That's called a Saturday night special. <laughs> and Saturday night specials, in many ways, have killed a lot of people over the years. Welford Hobby, my professor, used to say, never preach a Saturday night special. I never had. Um, a faithful pastor works on the sermon every Monday through Sunday morning. I'll tell you how I used to do it. Monday was my study day. I left it all in the field on Sunday, and I rewarded myself. I like to read. I like to study. I study all more Monday morning, not for the sermon, but to fill my well. And some of the things that I learn on Monday morning might appear in a sermon 15 years later. But I fill the well as much as I can. I do block out 
two hours Monday afternoon to work on Sunday sermon. And I would take the text, I'd try to come to it as cold as I could, and I'd write down, I had a paper and I'd put down impressions, questions, insights, uh, what does that mean? And I just like the text, let the text work on me. At the end of the two hours, I did the hardest thing for me was I said, okay, I'm going to try to reduce this text to one sentence. Oh, man, that was hard. Oh. And sometimes I could, sometimes I couldn't. And after I did that, then I tried to see if the text had an outline that sort of, you know, is there a thing like an outline here? Sometimes it's pretty apparent. Wow, yeah. Sometimes, oh, I don't see anything. But if it didn't, I would then try to make an outline. I'd say 70% of the time when I sat down to write my sermon, I had the outline there, I departed from the outline. I hope that was the Holy Spirit. Tuesday was language day. My professor said, you're never, never to get in the pulpit if you don't do a complete translation of the Hebrew and Greek. I never got in the pulpit. I've never gotten in the pulpit without doing that. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying I can't be a faithful preacher unless I do that. I'm not any good at Hebrew or Greek. And that was a blessing because I had to work pedantically through the text. And I'm the kind of guy, I have a, everybody has a right and left brain, but I'm the kind of guy that, that parsing Hebrew verbs was a left brain exercise. But while my left brain was doing that, my right brain, the creative side, and because I'm going so slow. You know, it's like if you got on, you know, I-35 going to Dallas at 90 miles an hour. At the end, I say, what did you see? But then you went back and you went at nine miles an hour. What did you, you saw a whole lot more. Uh, that's probably like, that's right. That's right. And uh, so I remember when I got to Dallas, my, I was telling my secretary, Here's how I prepare. She went out and bought a computerized Greek and Hebrew thing that would do it all for me. I said, no, 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 I don't want that. I call it walking, wandering through the stacks. You know how people used to walk, wander through the library looking for a book. And while you're doing that, your brain is working. So Tuesday's language day. Wednesday, I'm looking for illustrations. It's amazing. The longer you're in the ministry, right, Chris, the easier it is to find illustration. Early on in the ministry, I had these books of illustrations. They're all from the 19th century, Sunday school classes. and, and he, um, So it actually gets easier. Um, Thursday was my day off, and that was my Sabbath. I disconnected from the church. I never fully disconnected from that text, though. I used to say, I, Thursday, I mull the text. And um, then Friday morning, I write sermons. And sometimes the sermon just flew onto the paper. Oh, those were good times. But there was probably four times I did that. And sometimes I'm like this, give me something. And um, another thing Dr. Hobby said that saved me a lot of grief. He said, there are going to be Sundays. You're, you're going to write your sermon. And you know it's a dog. And your dog knows it's a dog, and you don't want to preach it. You don't even sure. You're so embarrassed. But it's Friday, and Sunday's coming. And so you got to show up. 
And he said, those are the sermons you're going to get the notes from. People are going to write you and say, that changed my life. There are going to be other Sundays where the thing actually flew onto the page. You couldn't wait to get in the pulpit. This ought to be on the Protestant hour on the radio nationally. And a lot of times those are just going to go, you're never going to hear anything about it. He says it's a Holy Spirit thing. That's why Paul says to Timothy, be ready to preach the word in season. That's when it flies onto the paper. And out of season, when you don't even want to show up for church because you're so, this is a dog. So um, the Holy Spirit, it's a, the ball is in the Holy Spirit's court whenever a pastor gets in the pulpit. And um, you know, I, was all, I, I prayed a prayer. Some of you remember before I preached, I always said, and now, Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But as they should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. And I really meant, I mean that prayer. I still say it whenever I preach. Because, um, and there was a guy in Dallas. <laughs> he'd come through the line and go, Ron, this is a great worship experience today. But there's like this 25-minute gap where it just, I can't remember anything. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Another guy used to come through and say, Ron, you're just an amazing preacher. Every one of your sermons is uh, better than the next. <laughs> yeah, those were some nice folks. Actually, they're good friends, and so I knew they were nice. So um, a number of you are in our Thursday morning men's Bible study. Joe's in there, and um, Don. And it's an amazing group of guys. We usually have 25 to 30 guys. Paul's in there. And uh, we go through a chapter, and then we just go around, and everybody says, what's jumped out at you in this text? And I'm amazed, as a guy who's been a Christian for 63 years, he's been to seminary and all that kind of stuff, I'm discipled by those other men. The insights in there that I never saw, wow. And so I'd like to do that this morning with this text, Psalm 9. Um, let, me, let me read it, and then in, some people are comfortable sharing in a group like this. Other people are not. They say public speaking is the number one fear of people. So nobody has to say anything here. If you don't, I'll have to go into a monologue. But um, so only if you want to share what's jumped out and grabbed you, share it. Otherwise, um, you don't have to. But listen to what people say. And as they're doing this, try to think as we go through this text. If I was handed this and had to get in the pulpit of there, what would I say? What, what do you think is the primary point this text is making? Dr. Hobby used to say, try to drill down to one point. You know, the old thing about Presbyterian sermons are usually three points in a poem. Uh, he said, try to drill down. What is this, the thing that the text writer, the Holy Spirit through the text writer, is wanting to bring home here and then see if the, the rest of the text does concentric circles around it and, and build it up. Try to think in that way. What is the main point that David is trying to say in this song? 
So let's, let's read through it, and then we'll see what... Uh, oh, oh, before you do that, um, a lot of scholars think Psalms 9 and 10 were one psalm at one time. Why? Because uh, it, the opening uh, word in every verse makes an acrostic of the whole Hebrew alphabet, and it, and it breaks... You know, the psalm, some people think, shouldn't be broken in half. And by the way, did you know that original scripture had no chapters and verses? Yeah. And they came about probably around the 14th century. One of my professors in seminary said, obviously, the guy doing it was riding horseback. And occasionally the horse would stumble and he'd uh, break a text. Because have you ever read, and go, why did they break that verse there? Uh, this seems to, or this seems to be more in line with the chapter following. So the v- chapters and verses are not a part of the inspired word of God. That's man-made. But the text is, which raises a question about how many verses are in the psalm. And if you heard my sermon, I don't know, a month ago, that was the first question I asked. I preached on Psalm 13. I said, how many verses are in this? Well, there's six. I said, Really? If you go back to the original Hebrew, the Masoretic text, there's seven verses. What? Because you see that heading at the top? It says, uh, to the choir master, according to Muthlaban. We don't know what Muthlaban is. It's probably some kind of musical uh, instruction. A Psalm of David. The original Hebrew says that is verse one. The ESV says it isn't. Um, Who's right? Yeah, Tom? This particular note says that it's to the tune of the death of the sons of Aaron. Mm-hmm. Which is the tune of the death of the son? Death of the son is the Must have been a popular song back in those times. <laughs> yeah, a musical term. We're not certain exactly what it is. Um, and I made the joke, you know, you see this a lot in the Psalms to the choir master, but there's not one that ever says, to the pastor. And I said, Jay and Tom Dooling, I don't know why David dedicates songs to you, or psalms to you. So, um, that's not very edifying, to the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. But I go with the Hebrew text, I believe that's the inspired word of God, for what it's worth. But, here we go, with the ESV numbering. Verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put your trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hegion Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Now, Mitchell put this summer sermon series together of Psalms, which Psalms is the Hebrew songbook, and these were originally all written to be sung. They still are in synagogues. And in our Presbyterian Reformed tradition, uh, the Psalter always played a, a big part. You know, there was a big debate in the Presbyterian Church over whether, and this is back like in the 17th century, on whether we should sing anything in church but the Psalms. The argument was, hey, God wrote 150 songs. We can't do any better than that. During colonial times in America, Presbyterian churches only sang the Psalms. And then a guy came along named Isaac Watts. And he's written some of the greatest hymns. And that's when the debate broke out. And um, by the time of the Revolutionary War, also known as the Presbyterian Rebellion, in England, uh, over half the Continental Army were Presbyterians. Did you know that? Um, Two-thirds of all the colonels in the Continental Army were ordained Presbyterian elders. And one of them, and I can't remember what battle was, uh, they were getting, the British were getting ready to attack, and uh, if you know anything about flintlocks, you have to put powder in the patch and then the ball and they were out of patches. So the colonel ran into a Presbyterian church, grabbed hymn books, started ripping the pages out, and says, give them Watts, boys. And so they'd stuff the paper down there. Um, so, uh, and you know, there was, not, there was not an organ in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland until 1866. Um, I grew up in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, and the battle there was, should there be any instruments in church, and uh, now they, they do it. But uh, so it, we assume that we've always sung hymns and always had instruments in church. In the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther was all for singing, congregational singing, and uh, Zwingli, who was a musician, Swiss guy, he was he was against music in the church. He said music is so seductive that. Uh, he was more for just the plain word. Calvin was, no, we should sing, but they had to be good hymns. And my beef with a lot of contemporary Christian music is, I used to tell the churches I've pastored, I said to the contemporary, 
I started contemporary worship in Baltimore and in Dallas, although I'm not a contemporary guy. But I'm missiologically wired, and I knew there were people there that they weren't going to come to hear Brahms and Bach. So, uh, but I said to our worship teams, I said, if you can sing any of this in a Unitarian church or a mosque, because some of this stuff is it's all implied, you know, I love you. You can sing that to your girlfriend. It has to be uh, uh, Christo-centered, Christo-explicit uh, to sing. And unfortunately, um, some of you know the name Keith Getty, who wrote the hymn In Christ Alone. He's written a lot of great hymns. He's an Irishman. He's a Presbyterian. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. He came to, we had him come twice to Highland Park Press. And first time I ever met him, we were in a Starbucks in Dallas. I said, Keith, why did you start writing all these great contemporary hymns? And he said, because I hate contemporary music. And uh, so anyway, my funeral service ends with In Christ Alone. Okay. Um, so, what do you think the central message of this text is? If, there's no right or wrong answers. The Holy Spirit may be taking you in a different direction than somebody else. But, yeah, Nancy? Mm-hmm. Definitely, that's one of the things there. God is sovereign over what? And you'll notice he explicitly points out that he's sovereign over all nations. Now, what do you, what do you think is going on in David's life that would engender him to write something like this? Does this seem to come out of a time of peace? No, no, no. He's, he's talking about how he's been, he's, he talks about enemies and these nations around him. And God, he wants God to give them their due um, because they're the goyim, the Gentiles. They're unclean, and they're attacking God's chosen people. Um, But there's something interesting going on in this text that if I were going to preach it, I'd bring out. It seems like David's calling for the downfall of all nations and God to punish them all. And yet, he talks about... uh, um, where is it? Arise, O Lord, let, verse 19, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. I see that as a, a anytime I work on a sermon, I'm always saying to myself, where's the bump of grace here? I believe grace is at the center of every text in the Bible. And I see that in verse, not verse 19 and 20. David's not saying totally destroy them. He's saying, Lord, put the fear of you in them, that the nations might know that they are but men. And you know, to me, that's saying, David, David, the Holy Spirit through David is saying, there's hope for the nations that are not Israel. And of course, you see that all through the Old Testament. How the Jews miss that, I just don't know. Uh, Abraham is to be a blessing to all nations. That phrase, all nations, just throughout Scripture. And I think, you know, when you come to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, then you realize you're a man or woman. That means you also realize you're not God. And that's the first thing you ought to say to yourself every day when you get up. God is God. I'm not. Let's go. Um, 
most of these nations around Israel, they think they are God or they have the God that should be worshipped. Molech or Baal or whatever. Or the despots believe they are God. Kim Jong-un in North Korea believes he is God. And the people of North Korea must worship him. And uh, boy, is he in for a rude awakening someday. What, what should we do about Kim Jong-un? I'll tell you what we should do. We need to pray for him. His grandfather was a Presbyterian. And his father, somehow, the apple fell far from the tree. So North Korea, uh, I can never pronounce the cap, Pyongyang, the capital was, before World War II, that was called the Jerusalem of the East. That's where Presbyterian missionaries took the gospel to Korea first. South Korea was rural and poor and, and very sparsely populated. North Korea was booming. That's where the Moffats took the gospel in the 1880s. And the whole nation comes to Christ just about. About a third of the nation of Korea is Christian. And uh, then after World War II, um, Stalin gets together with Kim Jong-un's daddy and they uh, drive all the Christians out or kill them or drive them out into South Korea. And now South Korea is booming and North Korea is basically a concentration camp. Kim Jong-un, think we should be praying that somewhere there's a spiritual seed in him uh, that he comes to Christ. Imagine what would happen if he came to Christ. And Vladimir Putin and our own president. I pray for them daily. If they came to Christ, the world would change. What else jumped out at you in this text? Anybody want to? Reminds me of that African-American saying, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Yeah, we should be declaring that God is good. Of course, the rejoinder I'm hearing to that is, well, if he's good, then how come there's all this suffering and wars and everything else? You know, that's a, that's a, a, a legitimate question, and that's a tough question for many people to handle. I've had probably dozens of people say, I could become a Christian except for all the pain and heartache in the world. If God was really good, he'd bring an end to it. So he's either not good or he's not all-powerful. Well, we affirm that he is sovereign, he is all-powerful, and he is all-good. So how do you reconcile that? There's no easy way to do it. I always go back to saying, well, the oldest book in the Bible is what? Job. And so the faith, the faith, chronologically, according to God putting Scripture together, begins dealing with that. It's like God is saying, if you can get, this is a front door question. If you can get past this, you're home free. So you deal right away with a righteous man, Job, who arguably is the best guy walking on the planet at the time. And God allows Satan to get a hold of him and wreck his life, why does, you know, I don't like that. Um, and yet, thank God for the book of Job, because it 
He presents us with, here's the ideal. Here's, here's how a faithful person goes through life. It's not based on if things are going bad or good. It's based on Job had a relationship with God. Even though he didn't understand what was going on, he was angry about it, but he doesn't take his wife's advice, curse God and die. He hangs in there with God, but he argues with God. He says, I want you to explain what's going on. I think we should do that. Then God kind of takes him out behind the woodshed. Were you here when I... And it says, Job repents. So I think that's the posture of how a Christian is go through life, because life is not fair. It is not fair. Thank God it's not fair. What if life were fair? Fair means you get what you deserve, right? Everybody gets what they deserve. What if life was fair? We'd all be in hell. That's what we deserve. God is not fair, but he's just, and he's a God of grace. And what helps me deal with this question, too, is was, did God hold himself aloof from the horrors and the pain and suffering of this world? Did he? No. In fact, I would argue that the most awful, unjust, pile up your adjectives. I mean, if Jesus was really God incarnate, we put him on the cross, and it's more than just nailing somebody to a cross. In a cosmic sense, Jesus suffers by taking the entire sin of the world on him. I don't, I don't know. Some of you have heard me say this before. I, I coined a theological word to explain this. It's this. That somehow Jesus sucked in all of the sin of the world and took it upon himself. And what did that feel like? What did he experience? We can't even begin. But God does not stand aloof. He's in it with us. I, I still, you know, we're, I, I still pray. I have a good friend in Dallas who just got diagnosed with lung cancer. And, you know, I'm praying that God will remove it and heal him completely. And I've seen that happen. I've seen it not happen. And ultimately, we're in God's hands. And if we believe that, we're never not safe. If you really believe it, if you have the assurance of your salvation, then you also have the assurance that you're never not safe. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And I have, I have them in my hollow of my hand. And nothing can snatch them from my hand. Disease, death, tragedy, you're safe. Might not look like it from the world's perspective, but if I'm killed in a car wreck tomorrow, oh, Ron wasn't safe. Yeah, I was. That didn't snatch me from Christ's hand. I don't like it. I don't want to die in a car wreck, but I'm never not safe. And um, we have that promise from Jesus himself. What other things jumped out at you and really spoke to you in this song? Yeah, Kathy. Um, basically, verses 9 through 12. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold for the And those who know your name put their trust in you, and I love that because really, a lot of people in our world today just can't, can't tolerate the name of Jesus. There's mockery, there's such rejection. Yeah. But those who know your name put their trust in you, and you, O Lord, have 
not forgotten those, but are not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits in the throne of Zion, tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of him and does not forget the problem of the afflicted. And I always think of how long the Hebrew children in uh, Egypt prayed and cried out to God for rescue and deliverance. And he does hear all his it's a David's suffering here. He's, he's crying out in his suffering. Um, but if you heard my sermon of a month ago, I talked about um, Ebenezer's in our life. When, when things are not going well, uh, rather than just focus on those, think about the Ebenezer. You know what an Ebenezer was? That was something, if God did something powerful in somebody's life back in Old Testament times. They would build literally a pile of rocks, like a little monument, to say God did something great. And they say that back in Old Testament times, if you walked across the Palestinian countryside, you'd see these piles of rocks everywhere. So if you're having a bad day, because God really exists, you could look around, you'd, well, look at, here's instances where he showed up, did something. We have an Ebenezer in our yard after our son Michael was, uh, made it through a stroke. We built that on a Thanksgiving day, and I see it every day. And I have bad days. I have days when I go, I wonder if my whole career has been based around a first century myth. You know, that flies through there every once in a while. And I go look at my Ebenezer, and, I, and you, where are the things, where are the times in your life, look back over your life when God did show up and do good and great and gracious things. And let those do a number on your present doubts and fears. Uh, so I think David does that here. He says, um, verse 14, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. So David's kind of looking back, praising God for when he did show up, and ultimately he rejoices in the salvation he knows he has. So uh, David knows he can't be snatched from God's hand. What else uh, jumped out at y'all? I like the words, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He does not forget them. Yeah. yeah. You know, does God really hear us? That's always a question. Sometimes you probably pray, you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling or something. Um, we have God's promise. He hears our every prayer. And he doesn't forget us. Somebody said the opposite of belief is not unbelief, but forgetfulness. That's why you see throughout Scripture, remember, remember, remember. Again, that's looking back at what God did. And uh, we forget God, but he never forgets us. And that's one of the major emphases of Scripture, that God is a God of complete justice. At the end of time, there will be no injustice, not corrected, paid for, whatever. Um, I've had too many experiences with 
families have come in my office. Their husband or their wife or their kids were killed by a drunk driver who got away. And you know, there's no sense of justice there. And I could always say, and someday there will be justice. We may not see it. But at the end, in fact, I believe David here is making a case for a final judgment day, which sounds very ominous, but it shouldn't if you're a believer in Christ. Um, you know, when what we believe as Christians is that one day Christ will return physically, bodily, and time will come to an end. We will be ushered into eternity, and he will bring his fulfilled kingdom into being. Um, should we fear Christ coming back? Some people should. You know, it says he's going to come back as a, a conquering warrior. Um, those people who mock God, they, yeah, they should be scared. But you and I have nothing to be frightened of. We, Christ said he's the bride. I mean, we're, he's the bridegroom. He's coming for his bride. You have nothing more to fear in Christ's return than you did of your soon-to-be spouse on your wedding day. Maybe some of you did have fear of that. And we're afraid. Um, it's your betrothed coming back. He's not coming. Your judgment has already taken place. The final judgment doesn't involve you. Um, when Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished. Boom. Your judgment was paid for by his blood. If you're, if you're not on Christ's shoulders going across the tight wire, be, be afraid. Be very afraid. Uh, it's not going to be a pretty picture. Yes, I will rejoice in your salvation. Yeah, we, we should be there rejoicing when he returns because then we will get our resurrection bodies. You won't need this thing anymore. And... <laughs> And uh, then we will be together with all other believers, um, which raises some interesting questions. I know, how old will we be in heaven? Will we all be 29? Uh, I think about my daughter who died at age two and a half. Will I recognize her? I know her as a two and a half year old. I don't think she'll be two and a half in eternity. I, I don't know. Um, the other thing I don't like is when Jesus says, you know, there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. Well, I want to be married to Anne for eternity. Uh, I don't, the Mormons say, yeah, you stay with your, well, I was going to say, stay with your wife or wives. Um, but that's not the Christian faith. No. I don't like that. But I, I guess it's because we love everyone equally. So... Nothing I don't like about it is, I don't, you know, one of my boyhood heroes is Robert, and still adult heroes is Robert E. Lee. I want to sit down and talk with Robert E. Lee. But that assumes that I'm going to think more highly of Robert E. Lee than Virgil Smaltz, who was a no-name accountant in Nebraska. Now, I'm going to be as excited about him as I, I don't like that. I want to, you know, look up these famous people and stuff like that. But don't worry. If there's a complaint or a suggestion box in heaven, it will be eternally empty. You will not have any complaints. We have time for maybe one more. Okay, Bill? Around your earlier question about drill down into the text to see what it's about, and, and all of our comments about what's been about this. And then the Bible says we're doing uh, Isaiah and 
very wrong in thousands of chapters and millions of words. Very disgusting. But I get through because in Jumbo on the first day of this, at the end of this, you realize God is here. You know, I'm glad Mitchell did not assign me this text. I can't, if you look at all my sermons for 40 years, I never preached a text longer than 10 verses. This thing's what, 20? That's because I learned I can't translate more than 10 verses of Greek or Hebrew. I'm serious. And so if he had assigned me this text, I probably would have broken it off. There's a break between 10 and 11. And I probably would have done just the first 10 verses. And but he assigned me one with six. That was great. So um, anyway, or I, if you look at my sermons over a period of time, I will take a. Let's say I did this. I, I would do this two weeks in a row, and do the last half of the psalm the next week. Um, it's just a little inside information on pastors. So, by the way, wherever you. If you don't stay here at First Pres because you move or something, the best thing to do to find a good church is, first of all, make an appointment with a pastor and uh, ask him to tell you what he believes. And pastors love that. Well, if they don't have anything to hide, they do. And uh, you better always check out the senior pastor. But then, is he an expository preacher? What does that mean? It means expositing the text, letting the text take his sermon where it wants to go rather than I have some ideas that I think this congregation needs to hear and I'll use the text as a springboard. And, you know, I've heard pastors read a text and preach a sermon had nothing to do with what they read. Get up, after, don't get up in the middle of the service, but walk out the end and go, I ain't coming back here. Um, is, I've been... Uh, I've, I've, I've had people come up to me not liking sermons that I've preached in every church I've been in. And my question always is to them, was I faithful to the text? Well, yes, that's all I needed to know. Thank you. If they said no, then I would listen. But um, a lot of times they're angry because I was faithful to the text and it said things they didn't want to hear. So that's how all pastors or pastors are cowards. Um, I'm a coward. But by faithfully letting the text take me, it, it made me say things I would never choose to say. It made you all listen to things you didn't want to hear. But uh, that's the task of preaching, is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And uh, so, well, David is both Afflicted and comforted in this text, because God ultimately is sovereign over that. So let's pray. And uh, next week, Tom, I'm not sure what psalm we're in next week, but Tom's going to do a bang up job on it. As soon as John gives it to me, I'll email it to you for homework. Okay. <laughs> let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for David, uh, a man after your own heart, considered to be the greatest king of. Israel, and yet there's hope for us because he was also an adulterer and a murderer and, um, and because he had innocent blood on his hands, he was not allowed to build the temple. So he was a flawed human being, and yet 
you heaped upon him your grace, and that means as flawed human beings, you heap your grace upon us as well. And we see that all come to a head on the cross. Uh, we thank you that it is finished and that we can know you at more than second hand, uh, that we can have union with Christ and have his robe of righteousness draped around us, which gives us that assurance of our salvation and the assurance to go through this broken world uh, with courage, even when the night is dark. And we thank you that you go with us every step of the journey. And we're thankful for our companion with a capital C, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.